0: Like you to turn in your Bible with me to Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8. Last week Sunday we noticed the uh, wonderful amazing power of the Lord Jesus as he uh, spoke to the elements, the wind and the waves to be still and they were and just seeing the beautiful power of Christ and we noted uh, several significant things last week that Jesus Is um, Well, we noted that being a disciple doesn't mean you're not going to face storms. Jesus will lead you into storms. But we uh, just noted that when um, Jesus leads us, he goes into the storm with us. He's in the boat with us. And uh, the Jesus who is with us is committed to rescuing us, to saving us. We're not going to be lost uh, because our Lord Jesus is able to deliver us. Well, this morning, as we move forward in the text, we're going to note that Jesus is Uh, he's in the boat not simply to deliver us, but to move us into mission. Uh, The story of the disciples and the storm doesn't end with the calming of the waves. Jesus got into that boat with his disciples with a destination in mind. We need to go to the other side of the lake. And the reason they needed to go there is because Jesus had a divine appointment on the other side of the lake. There was a man there who was known by God before the foundation of the world. A man who was loved by the Father before the world was ever created and given to Jesus Christ to be one of his sheep. And Jesus needed to go and rescue him. He had been captive by the powers of hell. And this one who had been given to Jesus Christ and yet who was in the bondage to sin, Jesus needed to go and make that spiritually dead man a brand new creation a new person and a child of the king by the power of God. And so that's the story that we're looking at this morning. I hope you're ready to again see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. Let's pick it up then, verse 26 of Luke chapter 8. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is given to bring life to dead hearts and souls. We are born again through the living and enduring word of God. And your word is given to feed hungry souls and to strengthen weak souls and to comfort grieving souls. And Father, we thank you that your word today is sufficient to the task. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit then would accompany the preaching and the hearing of this your word to our benefit and to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen. Brothers and sisters, in the text we have before us this morning, we find the essence of why Jesus came, what Jesus came to accomplish. It could be easy to think, and many do get confused by this, thinking that God sent Jesus primarily as a helper, as someone who just comes alongside and tries to make life a bit easier, tries to make life more palatable more comfortable. Um, And so we saw last week that Jesus does have the power to calm the sea, but Jesus has not come merely to deliver us. He has come to commission those who've been delivered. If God has rescued you from the powers of hell, He has called you to be a messenger of heaven. And the power, the redemptive power of God unleashed in the world through Jesus Christ is not just a power to give us security, it is power to give us a calling and to enable us then to speak into the, a demon-possessed world, into the darkness of this world with a message of truth and life and light that people might be saved. Jesus Christ came to commission us, not just to comfort us. We set the text of this, uh, of, of our uh, set the context for our text this morning. Uh, you will get a sense of what's taking place a little in a little more detail. Uh, Luke notes that they sailed uh, to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Luke is making a geographical note here, but it has spiritual significance. Because to go to the other side of the lake, to go from Galilee to the Gerasenes, is like going to the other side of the tracks. In Galilee, there was, Galilee was known as a sort of a hotbed for Jewish conservatism. Uh, The people in Galilee were pure blood Jews. There were various uh, schools taught by uh, significant rabbis. It was a sort of just a it was like a Grand Rapids, I suppose, if you think about the Reformed world. It was a place where people were serious about the Jewish religion. They were committed Jews, serious Jews, pure Jewish stock. And the Gerasenes was well, it was it was absolutely the other side of the track. If if you just put it in local terms, um, Galilee is Hudsonville, and the Gerasenes is downtown Detroit. Just different sorts of worlds, different dynamics. Remember, uh, pigs show up. Pigs don't belong in Israel, do they? There were no pigs in Galilee. Pigs belong to unclean places and unclean people. And that's where Jesus goes now in the story of Luke chapter 8. He is going where uh, the sick people are. He's going where the darkness is. To shine the light of the gospel. If you have your outline with you this morning, um, we're going to look at the power and, the in- and intent in this conflict. There are there are various forces. There's the power and intent of evil. There's the power and intent of Jesus. There's the power and intent of unbelief and the power and intent of faith. And so that will be the outline we follow this morning. Verse twenty-seven. Going to picture it. the uh, The lake is calmed. Maybe it's early morning. Uh, Jesus and uh, his disciples they come to the shore of the lake and Jesus steps out onto the land, sort of like a, um, it's like the Normandy landing, right? Jesus is is, is engaging the enemy and he steps out in the land and immediately there met him a man from the city who had demons for a long time he had worn no clothes had not lived in a, in a house but among the tombs. What do we know about this man? Well, he's from the city. It was from a normal family in that, in that region. But the defining characteristic of his life is that he has demons, or more appropriately, demons have him. He is under the bondage of demons. And we don't know a lot about demons from the Scripture, but we do know they're real. We know that they are fallen angels. These are created beings, spiritual beings made by God to serve God. And yet when the devil, the, when Satan rebelled against God, we know that a host of angels joined him in his rebellion. These are now the demons. There is, there is no good whatsoever in them. They are pure evil. And they are committed to the mission of the devil, which is to kill and destroy what God has created, what God has made good. And so they are active in God's world, and they are active still today. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 reminding us we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think Western Christians uh, can easily allow the sort of the secular viewpoint of, the, of our world, our secular worldview, which says that, that all that really is is things that you can see, And we've allowed that secularism to blind us, in a sense, to the reality of spiritual forces of evil. We don't wage war with flesh and blood, but spiritual forces of evil. Uh, Reichen, in his commentary, uh, mentions uh, the best-selling book, People of the Lie, by Scott Peck. And he uh, had not believed there was any such thing as uh, spiritual forces of evil until he met Charlene who, despite his best efforts, never made any personal progress. Eventually, he reached the conclusion that she was evil. In fact, that she was trying to destroy him. Peck writes, Charlene's desire to make a conquest of me, to toy with me, to utterly control our relationship, knew no bounds. It seemed to be a desire for power purely for its own sake. When Peck asked her about the meaning of life, Charlene replied she'd been raised in a Christian home where she was taught that the meaning of her life was to glorify God. Where did she get that? Probably maybe maybe a good Presbyterian home. But then she protested, I cannot do it. There's no room for me in that. That would be my death. I don't want to live for God. I will not live for God. I want to live for me, my own sake. Now, she's just being unusually honest. Truth is, is that that is the calling card of evil, and that is the calling card of natural man. Every person born in sin has exactly that commitment at heart. Well, this man is in bondage to that spirit of, of complete rebellion against God, a commitment under the power of these demons and and, and the evil of his own heart to throw away all of um, all of the structures that God has given to uh, to people to live in a society, and so he's from the city, but he doesn't live in the city. He is a walking picture of death. He lives in the tombs. He he lives in the tombs in Israel would be caves, uh, boys and girls. So this man would be living in caves with the bodies of dead people. He would eat there. He would sleep there. That w- that was his home. Now now tell us that just seems gross. Who would want to go sleep with a corpse? But to the Jewish mindset, this isn't just gross, it's, it's defilement. In the Mosaic law, to touch a dead body was to become spiritually unclean. That is because uh, they recognize that death is a sign of God's judgment against sin. It's the evidence of God's judgment against sin. And so to touch an unclean body would make you spiritually unclean, and you needed to then go through a process of cleansing. Well, this man is just completely engrossed in this uncleanness. He lives and sleeps and eats among dead bodies. He's at home amongst the dead. He belongs to the realm of the dead. And his bondage is manifest then in his social alienation. Sin and evil always destroys relationships, and this man had no significant relationships left, an absolute outcast from society. And he has even been robbed of his God-given human dignity. He doesn't wear clothes. He, he roams the wild like an animal. Beg, Elster Begg, says this man had crossed the boundaries of human decency. He had been reduced to a non-person, unfit for human society. And the tragedy is that he's utterly unable to change it. He cannot fix himself. He's under the dominion of sin. He's under the power of sin, and he cannot. You have to imagine that there would be days when he would weep, when he saw the devastation of his life, the utter destruction of everything good, and yet he could not break free of it. He was under the power of the devil. Be easy... It'd be very easy for us to dismiss this man as a tragic anomaly, just someone who just failed as a human being or someone who had just made a bad choice somewhere and and there was no help for him. And and it would be easy for us to see him as being very different from us. We're just like the Pharisee. I thank God that I am not as this man. The Bible, however, presents a very different picture. The Bible... tells us that this man is actually just a very vivid description of what is true of every person born in sin. He's just a walking illustration of the power of evil in the life of every person. There is not a single natural born man that, is, that escapes the power of evil and that can deliver himself from it. It, it simply is not possible for men to do. And the, the reality of that sin uh, creates the perversions that we find within us and, and the pollution that belongs to us. It breaks down relationships. It leaves people in a great bondage and alienation. You look at the world in which we live, and it is simply various manifestations of the exact same reality in which this man finds himself. To say that, uh, I'm just so thankful I'm not like him, you see, you'll miss the gospel. The gospel is for people like this, who cannot deliver themselves, and whose lives are being ravaged by the power of sin. Paul tells us that the natural mind, Romans 8, 7, is hostile to God. And so what what Scott Peck saw in Charlene, God sees in every natural-born human heart. An unconverted heart is a heart hostile to God. No matter how much they'll say they believe in God, an unconverted heart and mind is hostile to God, will not, cannot humble itself and repent of sin and love Jesus. It's not possible. Hostile to God. Ephesians 2.1, Paul says that all men are born dead in sin Objects of God's wrath, followers of the ruler of the air. We simply so often don't think of people who are outside of Christ in those terms. And yet that's how the Bible says it and speaks of those who are not converted. And evil always works to dehumanize you. It always breaks down what God has created for his glory. I was talking to a man recently and his, one of his sons has decided to pursue a homosexual lifestyle. And my friend, with just great grief in his voice, said to his son, um, Son, you, you are less, you are diminished as a person in this last year and a half. You're less honorable. You're less, you're less reliable. You're less, less thankful. You're being diminished as a person by the power of sin. And that is true for any sin. Right? You, you give yourself to any sin. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's a sexual uh, promiscuity. You give yourself to any sin and you will, you will, maybe you won't see it, but the people around you will see it. You are becoming diminished as a person. That's what sin does. Inevitably, it's what sin does. And we cannot fix ourselves, not by our, not by our power. We don't have power. And you see, the, the beauty of the gospel is that what is impossible with men is possible with God. That God has sent someone who is able and willing to deliver us, no matter how great the bondage. Aren't you glad this stories in the Bible? You can say confidently to your own condemning heart, you can say confidently to any person you meet, I don't care where you've been, I don't care what you've done, I don't care what sort of bondage you're in, I promise you there is a Jesus who's able and willing to deliver you. That's glorious good news. Because we need to see here not just the lost state of this man, but the power and the intent of Jesus There is an answer to the evil, so Jesus steps on the shore, and when the man sees him, he cried out, fell down before him, and said in a loud voice, what would you, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. It's interesting that the disciples had just gotten finished saying, who is this man? Right? He said... Be still to water and wind, and they, they obeyed him. And so the disciples are terrified. Who is this? Well, when Jesus hits the shore, now there's a man who knows exactly who he is. Why? Well, James says this. James tells us, James 2.19, you believe in God, James says, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. They know who he is. They know exactly who he is. They have a long history with this Jesus. And so these demons come, and they beg that Jesus would not torment them. Now, why would they say that? Well, because Jesus is Lord even over the demons. So Jesus comes, and he he judges the demons and delivers the man. He commands the demons to come out of this man. It's like Moses going to Pharaoh, let my people go. Jesus commands and the demons must respond. They realize they're standing before their judge and their maker and they are terrified by the second person of the Trinity. They beg him not to be cast into the abyss. The abyss is the final place of desolation. If you read the, the book of Revelation, that is where, the, where Satan and all of his hosts are cast into the abyss, the lake of fire, the place of final torment forever and ever and ever. And they beg him that they would not be sent there. They fully realize his authority to do just that. But they beg instead to be allowed to go into this herd of pigs that's feeding on the hillside. And so Jesus gives that command. Matthew said, uh, Jesus said, go, one word. And the demons are cast out of the man and they rush into the pigs and the whole herd, the whole lot of them go cascading down the slope and into the sea. Now there's a lot of questions that people ask about this. This is, this is one of the stories in the Bible that atheists like to scoff over. Really, this is, the, this is your Jesus? Sends whole flocks of pigs, uh, the economy of a whole village goes cascading into the sea? That doesn't seem very loving. What about these poor animals that suddenly are just lost, destroyed, drowned? Um, How is this this supposed to impress people? How how does Jesus ever expect to have a ministry among the townspeople when he just destroys uh, their their economy? Well, there's uh, there's all kinds of questions you could ask um, that the Bible doesn't answer. What happened to the demons after the pigs drowned? We don't know. Why this thing? I don't know. But what do we know? The Bible isn't written just to satisfy curiosity. It's written to save your soul. So Luke is trying to present a message here so that you can see the beauty of Jesus. What do we do see is Jesus symbolically casting these demons into the pit. They beg not to be sent into the abyss. They're not sent into the, into the abyss. But the sea in that, in that day and age is seen as the, as the, the pit. The sea is, is uh, where death is. The gates of Hades are at the bottom of the sea. It's a place of chaos and unrest. It's why the Bible says there's no sea in heaven. It doesn't mean there won't be beautiful beaches and salt water in heaven. I don't think that means that at all. It means all the chaos, all the rebellion, all the evil is all gone. But Jesus sends these, these demons then. They go into the herd of pigs, and, and they are all destroyed. He is Lord, you see, not just over the waves. He's Lord over all the spiritual forces of the universe. We said last week there's not an atom in the universe that can resist the will of its maker. There is not. So that's the material world. The same is true for the spiritual world. Every spiritual being that exists must bow to Jesus. That's powerful. That's beautiful. And so we thank God for his ability to to deliver us and protect us in the material realm, but this is even better. We think that our greatest concerns are the trials that we face, and they are great concerns, and Jesus knows, and Jesus cares. We have a high priest who's able to sympathize in our weaknesses, but But Jesus didn't die on a cross just to sympathize with you in your trials. Jesus came to rescue you from the greatest trial you're going to face. And that is the day when you stand before the living God who created you and give an account for your life. Jesus came to rescue us, you see, from judgment. He came to rescue us from eternal death. It is appointed unto every man once to die and then to face the judgment. Are you ready for that? We make all sorts of preparations for the uh, trials that we think might come our way. We try to eat healthy. We try to put a little money in the bank. We make sure our insurance policies are up to date. But that's just all temporary things. They're, that's important things. But, but there's going to be a day when you stand before God. Are you, are you ready for that? And that, that day may be a whole lot sooner than you think it will be. It could be Today. Are you ready to stand before the holy, thrice holy God, the one that, that angels, the cherubim, cover their faces because of the splendor of his glory? And that God will ask you to give an account of your life. Are you ready for that? Because, you see, a, a verdict will be rendered that will mean either for you everlasting bliss or everlasting torment. You will join the demons in the abyss. That is why Jesus is here. That's why he came. He came, you see, because this man was in bondage to that power, and Jesus loved this man and came to rescue this man and does so with the word. And the man then is, by the power of Jesus, immediately and irrevocably changed. So that we find that when the herdsmen saw what happened, they fled, told it in the city and the country. Then people came out and see what happened, and they found Jesus and the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. He's a completely different man. He is absolutely a new creation. He's at the feet of Jesus. He's no longer rebelling against God. He's listening to the word of God. He's soaking it in. Can't get enough of it clothed and in his right mind. You see, the only only time you're in your right mind is when your mind is fixed on him, fixed on the Lord, when your mind is fixed on the ways of God and the goodness and the grace and the glory of God. That's when you're in your right mind. And this man is there. He's he's absolutely, completely set free. No lingering demonic control. He's a new man. We're going to meet this man in the halls of heaven. You see, Jesus Christ has come to accomplish that, friends. He came to accomplish just this thing among the lost and helpless children of Adam. He, he comes and he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoners free. His blood can make the vilest clean. Look at this man. His blood availed for this man. Jesus' intent in the world, friends, is to save sinners from the judgment of God that they deserve. His intent, his desire, his passion is to rescue people just like this man, to take them out of the bondage of the power of death and to make them into a brand new creation in the grace and goodness of God. And all through his own life, this is what Jesus came to accomplish. It's why he he came. And now we need to respond to that. And you will respond, you see, one way or the other, and I will as well. It will either be a response of unbelief or it will be a response of faith. And that's what we see in the story. First, we see the power and the intent of unbelief. So the pigs rush into the sea. The herdsmen rush into the city. They've been watching over the pigs for the, the good folks of the town. And they flee and they tell what has happened. Now, I wonder what their, what their message was. Did they say something like this? Um, you will not believe what's happened. Something Glorious has taken place. Remember that crazy man, crazy Bill that lived over in the tombs? Right? Um, Jesus has healed him. You will not believe it. Every demon's cast out. He's, he's been saved. You think that was the message? I don't think that was their message. The, the text strongly suggests that their message was more like uh, something terrible has happened. Jesus killed all your pigs. The demoniac got saved, but it cost you all your pigs. Because there's no rejoicing in the story. There is not a single hallelujah. There is no praise God. You don't sense there's a smile on anyone's face. They're scared. They're frightened. They're concerned. You see, friends, that's the power of unbelief. The glory can happen right in front of you and you don't even see it. That's power. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is in front of them. He has just exercised his power over the forces of hell in the most amazing way. They knew this man. They had tried to bind this man. They were fully aware of his predicament. And now suddenly with the word, Jesus has made this man new you think that somebody would have said hallelujah. That somebody would have said, we need to get to know this man. Remember the Samaritan woman, when she was just found out by Jesus and saw his truth and grace, she went back to the city and she reported good news. There's someone here who can, who can tell you everything you've ever done, and yet he still loves you. He's able to save you. He's willing to be a friend of sinners. But they miss it. Why? Well, they don't believe. You see, they're, they're in love with their possessions. They're mourning the loss of their pigs. They don't understand the value of a human soul. You can't, you can't understand the value of a human soul and, and see this take place and, and not rejoice. They clearly do not love this man. He was a nuisance then. He's a nuisance now. But you see, most fundamentally, they have no idea that they are in the same predicament as he was in. <laughs> They do not grasp that they just as desperately need Jesus' help. You see, there's different ways of being in bondage to sin. One way to be in bondage to sin is to be, to be known as just an absolute rebel. To be someone, you're, you're just a... You're out partying. You're addicted to drugs. You're addicted to your sin. You're just wreaking havoc and wreckage everywhere you go. And everybody, when they look at you, they just shake your head and there's a there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a guy, there's a girl that has no concern for the things of God. But that's not the only way to live in unbelief and rebellion. You can live in soft rebellion, soft unbelief. Soft unbelief, um, Just you're just living your life. You're pursuing the things of this life. You're in the soft bondage of materialism. You love your things. You want more. You're in the soft bondage of your self-centered life. You're just basically looking out for number one, and that seems okay to you. You're in the soft bondage of self-reliance. You don't need help. You don't want help. You're in the soft bondage of some form of religion that has no power. You think you're a good person because you believe certain things or do certain religious practices. You're in the soft bondage of average morality. You think that because you're not really much worse than anyone else, you're okay. You are in the soft bondage of deep-rooted pride that refuses to acknowledge your sin and kneel before God and beg for forgiveness and repentance. You see, friends, most people go to hell that way. Most people go to hell that way. Most people don't go to hell spectacularly, like Hitler, Stalin. They just go to hell quietly as they refuse to see the truth about who they are and what they need. They refuse to receive Jesus as Lord. They refuse to allow Jesus to interfere with their life They refused to lose their life in this world, and so they forfeit their life in the world to come. And that's where these people were. They saw the power, they saw what Jesus was able to do, but they were not interested in him. They were not interested in learning of him, so they asked him to leave. What an incredibly awful thing to ask for! Some of these people, right in hell, will be shaking their head forever. How could we have been so blind that we asked the Son of God who came to save sinners, we asked him to leave? And then we read those, those, those tragic words, so he did. He did. He got into the boat and returned. He left them just as they had asked. He left them in their self-chosen bondage, and re- he returned to Galilee. Friends, the Bible says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found, and call on the Lord while he is near. If you continually ask Jesus to leave you alone, do you realize he's free to do that? He doesn't owe you his presence. So if he's calling you to repent, he's calling you to return. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of grace. This is not a day for asking Jesus to leave you alone, asking Jesus to give you a little more time to enjoy your sin. And so we see the power, the devastating power of unbelief, but then we see the beautiful power and intent of faith. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, and that's the difference you see between these two people, between these two groups of people, between faith and unbelief. Unbelief is ask Jesus to leave, maybe willing to sort of, have him in the periphery of life, but does not want Jesus reigning as Lord and King. Unbelief asks Jesus to leave me alone. This man begs to be with Jesus. He cannot get enough of Jesus. He wants to go where Jesus goes. He wants to hear everything Jesus has to say. He wants to participate in Jesus' mission. He wants to be a disciple of Jesus. He loves Jesus. Because he knows Jesus. He's experienced the power of Jesus. But notice, Jesus denies his request. Jesus sent him away. Jesus said no. Why? This is why, verse 39. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. What wonderful grace of Christ to this man. He is being commissioned by Jesus to be an ambassador of grace, a herald of the best news the world will ever hear. Jesus, in a sense, promotes him above the disciples. The disciples are still trying to figure it out. They're still trying to understand exactly who Jesus is and and what he's here to do. This man knows. This is the Son of God, and he is able to deliver those in utter bondage to sin. He sets the captives free and he did it for me. So he's got a story to tell. And so Jesus sends him to tell it. Go, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. This is the first great commission. Has God shown grace to you? Then there's a story to tell. And God commands us to tell it. Jesus tells this man, tell him everything God's done for you. And so what does he do? He goes and declares all that Jesus did for him. One of the things I love about this body is the willingness of folks who have been through the storms and people who've experienced the devastating power of sin in their life, in their marriages, and just in their own personal life the willingness of those folks who now have also experienced the delivering grace and power of God, the willingness to tell the story. What if we just kept all those stories silent? What if we just didn't talk about what God has done for us? Well, think of all that would be lost. Think of all the glory that God would not get because, because we wouldn't hear the stories of, of demoniacs delivered, and we wouldn't hear the stories of marriages being beautifully restored and, and people being set free from the captivating power of sin. We wouldn't hear about, about men who've been addicted to pornography and now by the grace of God are learning to walk free, or, or women that had been just addicted to image and to self and to, and to whatever it might be, you see, their reputation, whatever, and by the grace of God, they're growing. And they're not the same they used to be. And we need to hear those stories. And I just praise God that those stories are being shared in the congregation. And I encourage you to get to know each other's story. You see, this is our message. We're the people who ought to be talking. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet your tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who, like me, his praise should sing? We should be talking, 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 talking. Because we've been blessed, 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 blessed. There's grace here also for the townspeople. Do you notice who Jesus sends this man to? He sends him to the people that asked him to leave him alone. Go back to your town. Isn't that beautiful? You see the desire of Christ for the salvation of sinners? They asked him to leave, but in a sense he won't leave. He sends this man back. He sends a missionary back to these wicked people. And he tells them, you go and you tell those people what God has done for you. And so that's what that man did. Friends, that's our mission in the world. Your deliverance isn't just for your comfort. Your deliverance isn't just for your eternal security. Our deliverance is for the world. Our deliverance is for all the people who don't know yet. All the people who haven't heard yet. Friends, there are are people right here in Grand Rapids who are going to die without Jesus Christ. There is a mission field right here. This man, Jesus did not send this man to the foreign fields. He sent him home. There's a mission right here. There are people that you work with. There are people, did you see in Job's testimony, how come Job ended up in church? Because a co-worker invited him to church. And God went to work. Those, Those folks are all around us. All around us. And we have a story to tell. And you might think of it to yourself, well, I wasn't demon-possessed. I, I was never into drugs. I just, I just wasn't that big of a rebel. Okay, but what has God done for you? That's what Jesus, notice he doesn't tell the demoniac. Go and tell them how awful you were. He says, go tell them what Jesus, what God has done for you. So, so if you don't have an, a, a story of how awful you were, that's Okay. <laughs> By the grace of God you were blessed and and many of you raised in Christian homes where you had structure and nurture and truth and God was early at work in your life. Praise God. But let that be your story. Why did God do that for you? Why did he give you to a Christian home? When there are millions who will never hear the name Jesus, why did he do it for you? And how has God been at work to show you your need of him? And how, how did God bring you to faith in him? And how has God shown his faithfulness in your life? Even through difficult times. And do you understand that if you belong to Jesus, then you've been ransomed and healed and restored and forgiven? That you have an inheritance greater than anything this world knows? Do you have a sense of how rich you are? Do you see what a magnificent story you have? That all points to God, all points to his grace, and you get to be the messenger. You get to be the ambassador. We get to be the people who live in a world that's caught in the bondage to sin, and we get to share what God did for us in Jesus Christ. So what's your story? I encourage you to write it down. I encourage you to just put it, get a, pull out a little piece of paper. Type it out. What's your story? If someone would come to you on the street tomorrow and say, what, why are you smiling You could say something more than, well, it's springtime. I mean, praise God, it is springtime. But you know the creator of the springtime. You know the the God who sent Jesus. Write your story out. You might be surprised. I just heard recently of someone who did this in the church, and that week, God brought them someone, and they had the opportunity to share that story with them. You might be surprised whom God brings your way when you're ready to tell your story. Friends, we're commissioned. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that good? We have a calling as those who've been rescued. And if you've not yet been rescued, if you're still today kind of just trying to decide if you're going to commit your life to Jesus, if if you're going to go all in or you're going to kind of keep him on the periphery, I beg you, friend, make that decision today. Make that decision today. Jesus does not owe you a tomorrow. And Jesus, his intent today is to rescue and save you. And when he's accomplished that, as you confess your sin, you can have absolute confidence that he is willing to receive you. And when he does, tell the story. Let's be a church that tells stories that we declare the wonderful acts of God, that we talk about what he's done, even in our own life, in spite of us, the grace he's shown to us, The power that's at work within us, the hope that we have because of Jesus, the world needs to hear it. Jesus calls us to tell it. Amen. Father in heaven, I thank you for the beauty of Jesus. I thank you that he delivers us and commissions us and he wants us to tell the story I thank you so much, Lord, for the stories, the beautiful stories of grace that are right here in this this room. And Lord, I thank you that for those who realize this morning that they don't really have a story of grace, that their life has been largely just about themselves and about their sin. Father, I pray that this very day they would bow the knee to Jesus and surrender themselves to his lordship and that this day they would experience the freeing power of Jesus Christ Lord, I thank you that just as surely as Jesus spoke to this man, he's speaking to us. And I pray that we would hear, that we would respond in faith and obedience, that we would love this Jesus who's rescued us, who's made us children of the Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.